Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Feeling Seen podcast, the podcast that talks about the movies that make us feel seen. And today's co-host, this is a new now next moment, you guys. This is us saying we were we're there in the ground floor. This is us allowing you the pleasure of telling others years from now, I told you so, when you listened to this podcast and talked about Chloe Okuno and you talked about her new movie, The Watcher, and then you were like, and then I went and watched Slut and I was totally blown away by her short film. Chloe Okuno is a writer, director, a graduate of the illustrious American Film Institute. I mentioned the short film Slut. You can find that on YouTube. You should watch it. Consider that a companion piece, in my opinion, to Watcher and her new movie, Watcher, is about to be rolling out in front of eyeballs across the digital landscape. Chloe Okuno, did I leave anything off? Do we need to set people up in a different way to, to really get going here? I don't, I don't think so. I feel like you covered it. Um, love Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, let's see, what else? <laughs> Do you want to hear my Buffy hot take? I'm sure you don't, but I'm going to offer it anyway. No, always. Tell me. The, the, the movie is my Buffy. Oh, really? Yeah. It's a real travesty for us, for dozens of us who feel this way, that Christy Swanson is now deeply MAGA, um, because that's my Buffy. That is the Buffy of my heart. And believe me, I'm not trying to change anybody's minds out here, but I feel like I just have to speak on its behalf whenever anybody's like, Buffy, I'm like, write the movie. I love that. I mean, honestly, I also love the movie um, and the show, but the show has my heart. Although the show Legit. also, uh, I've, I've recently come to understand, uh, I have to look at that show a little differently now, which is unfortunate, but I still love it. And I still love Sarah Michelle Gellar. Tremendous. I, I did not lure you here to talk about the finite differences between Buffy's. Uh, I have lured you here under other pretenses, which is to talk about your film and a film that is resonant with you. And we're going to see how we can tie those things together because you have brought a character that I feel works into themes I really appreciate about your work. I feel like it ties together very neatly. And because you, when asked about a character, you brought Nina Sayers from Black Swan to the table. And that is a sumptuous choice. <laughs> it is. Yeah, I think it, I love the question, by the way. I loved when Thank I got you. You know, the, the feeling scene question. Um, and there have been a lot of people, I was thinking of a lot of different possibilities. Like mm -hmm. I, I was very close to going with um, Janine Garofalo and Romy and Michelle's high school. Reading. Wow. Oh my God. God, someone out there, someone please pick that at some point. Know that if you're like, that's actually my first blush choice. But is that? Yes, that's a great choice. And I want to talk all about it. <laughs> Maybe I should have gone with that one. But no, I, I felt like, um, yeah, I just there's a there's a lot to talk about with Black Swan. <laughs> there is so much to talk about. And I want to I want to talk about it first by bringing in sort of a wider question, which is that with we have Black Swan as a text on offer here. We have mentioned Slut, a, a a short film about a young girl, sort of awkward and insecure, trying to court the attention of male suitors. Um, and a dangerous figure comes into her life that she is initially charmed by. Horror ensues. And then Watcher, uh, the story of a married couple who moves to Bucharest for job reasons, leaving the leaving our central character, Micah Monroe's Julie, to sort of be left more and more and more alone as her husband is busier and busier and busier, and as she starts to notice somebody from across the way watching her. And that pervasive sense of being surveilled as a woman in this world. And the question I wanted to start off with was, 
given what you make and the sort of predilections expressed by like the black swan choice, when did you start perceiving the experience of being female in this world as horror? When when did you start being like, oh, there's some mm, there's something going on here. And I feel like I'm in my own genre film maybe every day of my life at some point. That's an amazing question. Um, I feel like, and one of the reasons why I think I really am um, kind of obsessed with Nina Sayers and Black Swan is because obviously like Baranofsky and Natalie Portman created this character where they're leaning really hard into the fact that even though she's a grown woman, she's treated like a little girl. Yes. That is truly one of the spookiest lingering things about that movie. As I watch it more when I get older, I'm like, oh my God, it is so fucking scary what a diorama this ballerina is kept in. Whoa. Oh, Nina. It's just a rash. Oh, just a rash. What are you talking about? It was a few days ago. It's fine already. Oh, you've been scratching yourself again. No, I have. Mom. I've gone this disgusting habit. <laughs> Jesus Christ, I thought you were done with this, Nina. Shrugs. You keep wearing the shrugs. Sit down. You have the white one and the pink one, and that'll hide it. It, it's super creepy, um, and I mean, it. I feel like, you know, I have these memories as a child of, of, um, you know, and in a way, there it's weird because it's like positive memories in some mm-hmm. respects, but it's also tinged with some, um, like, cre- like creepiness. That, you know, when I was a little girl, I was very like super feminine, and I'm not mm-hmm. sure if it was me or if it was sort of my mom who was like dressing me up in the little dresses and the flowers in my hair, uber, uber, uber girly. Um, but I just feel like I, I already had this awareness early on that like, I felt like I was a thing that was there to be looked at. Wow. as a thing that was there to be presented as pretty. And even if I, I sort of liked it and I liked like being girly and I liked having on the little dresses and the braids and, and the, the bows and the flowers in my hair, it just, I think I even then had this like uncomfortable sense of um, I I am a thing that is being put out there to be looked at. I've ever it's that was the first time maybe, but I think it's a thing that that's why it's probably a thing that I keep going back to um, in the movies that I make. Well, and in, in, in Emily Emily Rodakowski, a model essayist, she is she's emerged as a you know a, a various pronged figure in the cultural landscape. But but I think what sort of introduced her introduced the fast facet of her as a public figure as an essayist and someone who would speaks very forcefully about like feminism in her own like perception of it and, and as such was an essay I think she wrote for Lena Dunham's S, uh, newsletter she had for a while called Lenny and it was about how when she was growing up her I think it was her uh I, I hate I hope I don't misquote it but her her dad like referred to her as like a baby woman because she was so developed at such a young age and she was so noticed by adult men that like it she became very aware as like a 13 14 year old that she was coveted as a woman as this barely post-pubescent child and for simply no other reason than she possessed the markers of desirable womanhood and therefore she was fair game to a to men's observing eyes. And there is such an entitlement. And I, I love the title of, of your movie with Watcher because that is such a it's an everything and nothing term. Like we know nothing about him and yet we know everything we need to know 
about this figure to be afraid or to be paranoid or, or have some sort of negative connotative reaction. And just that sense of surveillance. I've been thinking a lot lately about the notion of like surveillance horror of women with men coming out recently, the movie Alone coming out a few years ago, Run, which also uh, came out, I think it was a Shutter release. Um, and just, I feel like there is a honing further and further of what I'm seeing, and it's really reaches such like a pinnacle of execution in your movie of this women getting to make fucking films and this sort of presentation um, so accurately rendering that ubiquitous, almost like the environment itself has eyes on you and you need to be aware of that. And that it feels that's such a hard thing to do right. And it's incredible to me that you nailed it so efficiently in your film. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, it's so funny. It's um, women haven't typically been able to be the ones behind the camera. Generally for movies, when we think of the kind of iconic thrillers of this vein, which are mm-hmm. about um, the sort of paranoia with a female protagonist at the center of it. And like this feeling of, of you know, themes of being watched and voyeurism. It's mostly been men behind the camera. So mm-hmm. it's a very interesting thing as a director to be that because when you are making a film, you are you are the person who's gazing. You are sort of like the orchestrator of this gaze. And it's a very interesting sensation. It's one that in some ways feels very powerful, I think. Mm-hmm. It's like I am I am no longer, I am the person who's now orchestrating the gaze upon somebody else. I'm now I'm sort of complicit in it. Right, yeah. You're you're the peeping Tom camera with the blade on it. Exactly, yeah. But you know, I really hope and and I'm obviously looking at the example of these great filmmakers, many of whom have been male, to see like mm-hmm. how have they created that, you know, hypersense of voyeurism, claustrophobia, what have they done to create a sense of isolation? Um, you know, I, I hope that part of what's a little bit different about Watcher, um, maybe, is that I'm approaching it from, I think, a place of knowing what that feels like. And I hope that, you know, I bring a little bit of empathy to it. Um, but yeah, it is it is very, it's very strange, actually. I felt <laughs> like um, when we were doing the, the scene that kind of opens the movie, or at least the title credit scene, this couple moves into the apartment, and then we sort of see them start to start to have sex and there's a shot where we're just slowly like pulling out from the window we kind of linger on it and don't look away and I designed that shot to make people feel like they are in the sort of like perspective of the watcher feel a little uncomfortable but like when I was shooting it I genuinely felt like a pervert (laughs) right like especially with that like it'd be one thing if you're like if you're like in the room with them it's like we're filming a scene we're in a room together but like you're it looks like on the other side of the glass from them like you are truly not a part of the experience you're just looking on from a perch through their window at them as they're getting more and more undressed literally yes literally i'm just i'm like it's even worse than that i'm like this little creep in a dark corner with my director's (laughs) monitor just like this yeah in a hood (laughs) well i think that that's such an interesting that's such an interesting reaction that moment because it it like the fact of you considering your creepiness in that moment feels in and of itself about part of why this movie feels responsibly handled 
because you're aware of that. I'm, I'm going to come back to Watcher, but I want to get I want to I want to bring Black Swan in because with this idea of like you bringing in your own story when you're young and this awareness that you have a currency for your presentation and then something like Watcher, literally called Watcher, about the process of being looked upon. And then in, in Black Swan is something where it's not necessarily the walk and stock kind of movie. It's not necessarily about what is the danger around the corner, but you what you have is Nina is a character utterly forged by the gaze and perception of other people. Her entire existence is made up of how other people see her, from her very incredibly domineering mother and Barbara Hershey to Tomad, the company leader in Vincent Cassell. And then the unraveling starts to happen, it seems like, with Nina when she starts to reach a point of actualization. And I wanted to talk to you about, like, that malignancy of of being shaped by the watching and like what what does happen with the a present with the awareness of the watching when you decide to like break out and go beyond that like what's what's the the actualization moment perhaps for chloe okuno <laughs> when did you turn into the black swan it hasn't happened yet I mean, <laughs> um yeah i mean I, that movie for me, I mean, you said it so beautifully. Um, it's sort of like the story. To me, it's almost like the story of um, a people pleaser. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have felt, and I think maybe a lot of women have felt, that it's so ingrained in us to to please other people that mm-hmm. we almost lose a sense of ourselves. Almost like, I don't know if my own identity is me or if in some way it has been shaped by me trying to fill the expectations of other people. And maybe everyone feels that way to an extent, not just women, but um, yeah, I'm attracted to those kinds of stories as, you know, I, I think the black swan or, you know, the, the rage inside of Carrie or Amy and gone girl for me, they're almost expressions of like women who have a moment where, the sort of dark impulses that they've repressed their entire lives come mm-hmm. out. Um, and obviously, you know, you don't want to be burning down a high school. <laughs> yeah, right. But there is something incredibly cathartic for me about seeing that because I feel like, for me, that's really a story about the parts of ourselves that we repress and that we don't allow ourselves to access. Not necessarily like like the evil part of ourselves even, but just the part that feels a little bolder and is a little bit less fearful because yeah, I think a lot of my life, the thing that I really did like relate to with Nina Sayers is, is that kind of timidity Mm -hmm. and just this, the sort of fear to like be big, like show yourself in any way and to take up space in a room. Um, that's what I love about it. <laughs> it. Obviously, it's a dazzling performance from Natalie Portman, but but watching it again, it, it was really just like, wow, this really this is kind of an all timer what she's doing right here. Like from that moment in the bathroom when she finds out she's the Swan Queen and goes to call her mother, and it's just peak Nina Sayers, peak White Swan, and just weepy, diminutive, excited, but like high pitched voice. Hi. What is it? What's wrong? I'm fine. Um. What is it? He picked me, mommy. Do you hear me? For swan leg? I don't know if it is swan queen. Well, um. 
Abby hopes you and I just wanted to let you know. I love you. I love you too. To like transitioning to the moment later when she is regarding herself as the black swan, like looking in the mirror, it's like, holy shit, this is remarkable, actually. So good. That's like that is the moment when I remember seeing the movie for the first time when she makes that call to her mom in the bathroom when I was like, okay, this is beyond. Like she's so good. Um, and it's so, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's like a big performance in a way that mm-hmm. I love and that matches the tone of the movie. Like, it's like she can't, literally can't speak above a whisper. It's very extreme, but it just, it works so well. Um, and she's so incredible. And like, even, I mean, I know a lot of people have talked about like her physical transformation, but it is genuinely like so disturbing, like seeing like, just even like her her body has shrunk down to nothing and just, she seems like this fragile thing um she's like the embodiment of this fragility yes uh so yeah i i love it i love natalie portman when i with the thor love and thunder uh full trailer out now i was like oh my god i'm i'm actually going to say the word swole natalie portman (laughs) i never thought i'd see the day i love it i i really i actually like you know and and say what one will about the marvel bodies and the marvel machine but the uh, what I what I did actually really love about seeing Swole Natalie was it it is like it's not like it's not like Black Swan muscles. It's not even like Brie Larson Captain Marvel muscles. It's like thick Hulk muscles. Like it's it's Thor muscles. They're not like they're she's stunning, but it's like in the in the conversation of like cute you know little lithe muscles versus like built for power. Natalie Portman as Thor looks built for fucking power. And I, I actually love the the training or aesthetic choice to put it so forwardly in that bulk and strength direction when that is not how we identify. We identify Natalie as perhaps a swan, but we don't see her as a fucking shed of a person. <laughs> I love that. I did. Yeah, I saw a picture of her and I thought she looked like, I mean, yeah, it was kind of incredible. But I, I, at the same time, I don't know, maybe this is just a Twitter thing. And how much can you trust Twitter? I read that during the sort of uh, pre-production VFX process of She-Hulk, she was supposed to be bigger. Yes, I read that as well. Which is actually what made the the Portman arms pop more for me because I was like, wow, if that is if if so, like annoying if true about She Hulk, but then they pushed Natalie Portman in a She Hulking direction for Thor. Fascinating conflict of interest here. Um, but it, regardless of any of that, I um, I'm just taking us off in so many different directions. But I was listening to uh, you did the Indie Hustle podcast. And in in watching Black Swan, um, I was thinking of something I heard you say on that podcast, which is talking about like in in filmmaking, such a challenge of the industry is that undulating nature of success where you can be having a peak up moment while, you know, perhaps people around you in your peer group and your group of like core creatives, like they're not quite at that same crest yet. But then as time goes, like suddenly friends around you, people closer moving up on their crest and you have to gracefully be in a, a dip of your own and be like, we're all supporting each other. We're all part of the same company. We're all in this together. And I was watching Black Swan looking at that like Nina Lily back and forth where it's just like pure rivalry. But it is so difficult to balance that 
tough aspect of being a filmmaker to, I feel like, to to process it out of pure rivalry and have it, like, just reach that zen understanding of, like, we're all going to have our moments at various times. Like, I wanted to hear from you a bit about that specific challenge of what you do. Yeah, the, it, it's, um, I don't, I don't know. I wish I could say that I've gotten to a really zen place about it. I haven't, so don't feel obligated on my behalf. No, I, I haven't totally, but I think with the benefit of time, you know, I went to film school at AFI, uh, which I loved. Um, I actually was very lucky in that my class of directors were pretty close. And we definitely had a, uh, a healthy sense of competition, but <laughs> I think we still like genuinely were a little bit more supportive maybe than some of the other ones. Mm-hmm. But it's still very difficult, you know, and I remember the first few years graduating um, <laughs> with the, the awfulness of social media, you're just seeing people's triumphs and it makes you feel like shit. Yeah. Um, but, you know, again, it's sort of like, I've now been out of school for long enough, like seven or eight years, and I've already sort of seen the ups and downs. Um, and it's just something that, you know, <laughs> of course, maybe now it's sort of, I feel like I'm on a little bit of a high because <laughs> the movie is coming out and I write an interview about it. So you know, now I can be very philosophical. Yeah. Hey, I'm coming to you at the right time to be magnanimous. Yeah, exactly. Like, <clears throat> talk to me like in a year. I'm like in bed drinking wine and like watching <laughs> Buffy. But <laughs> I mean, it it is, um, it's just, yeah, it's it's a strange thing. I think it's it's good in the way that sometimes if it doesn't become too toxic, you know, mm-hmm. that competition can be motivating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can still, you can be on a team and still want to be the best one on the team. Like, you can be a team first person and still be like, we all push each other to try and be the best person on the team at any given time. Exactly. And, like, the truth is, like, the best part of coming out of AFI for me was not just my class of directors, but specifically within a class of 28, there were seven women, not that many. It's gotten better. Mm -hmm. Those seven women um, I'm so close to even today we really like because being a, a female director is uh, a whole different ball game. I think than being a male director, mm-hmm. we've really been there for each other, and that relationship, like I think, more than anything else, has kind of kept me sane over the last seven or eight years. They like lean on each other and rely on each other, and it's especially beautiful, I think, uh, because I really, really find that. I've been taught to see other women as my primary rivals. I mean, I won't say who, but like a family member of mine, I was when I was going to film school and I was talking about my class, like she kept like asking about the other female directors. Those are your rivals just because they're women. And I like, that's another reason why I like it. Going back to Black Swan, I mean, Completely. it's kind of like a harmful trope, you know, women versus women. But the truth is like, it's rooted in reality because we've been taught to view each other as rivals and it's, it's not good and it sucks. And I hope that people like get past that, but it's sort of like an instinct, not an instinct, but it's a thing that has been sort of ingrained into you. You have to unlearn, I think. Um, So I've been trying to unlearn that. Beth, I'm so sorry to hear you're leaving the company. What'd you do to get this role? He always said you were such a frigid little girl. What did you do to make him change his mind? I'm really glad you actually used that word specifically of unlearning, because it, like, coming into adulthood for 
for women, for queer folks, for for non cisgendered people, you and talking about like this conversation around like expectations and being formed by the the gaze or the notice of others. Like there's this sense of when you are marginalized you are you're going to be in a room with the same 10 people who are just like your demographic over and over again so you better get picked over those other nine and then I was um reading too in a an interview that you did where you talked about John Berger's ways of seeing and you mentioned you you quoted talking about that you were saying that women are essentially trained to see themselves through the eyes of men so we can't really separate ourselves from the vision that men have on us end quote and there's so much like in addition to that I think that plays into that competitive landscape because it's a marketplace like we are trained to see ourselves through the eyes of men and so therefore we are a part of like the competition market for men who wish to consume us around us like how is, how do you feel about, like, you know, it's not got, it can't be active all the time, otherwise you just drive yourself fucking insane, but, like, do you feel like you have to actively engage in, like, the unlearning process of, processes of these things while you're just trying to make good fucking movies and stuff? <laughs> um, not every day can be a goddamn semiotics class. Like, you're just, like, trying to make a good movie out here, man. Um, yeah, I mean, God, I do. I, I mean, honestly, I feel like it's more like I have to unlearn that stuff just for my personal life, my personal sanity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but in making movies, I I do. I try not. It, it's a dangerous thing, I think, when you're a filmmaker, because you all you have to be very analytical about certain things, very intellectual about certain things. Um partially as a way to, you know, know what movie you're making and to be able to explain it to your collaborators and the people around you. But mm-hmm. at the same time, I always worry a little bit that, you know, I don't want to um, become too self-analytical. Right. You're still an artist. You're still a creative here. Yeah. I mean, I still think that there's some things that come from a place of instinct. Um, and maybe it's just, you know, that's where I think watching movies your entire life, like especially watching movies as a kid, there are certain things that just sort of get under your skin and become part of your creative DNA. Mm-hmm. Those are the things that make you who you are as an artist. But I do worry that there are certain things that I learned from watching movies made by men that make <laughs> you have like some like true misogyny like uh-huh. into it that I loved when I was a kid. But now like kind of going back and looking at it again and I'm like, you know, like that sort of lives inside of me and that has now become my taste. But mm-hmm. I can see now that there is a little bit of grossness to it occasionally. And like, do I want to be a person who is like thoughtlessly just putting that out into the world? And I haven't really come up with a solution yet um, because my taste is still my taste. Yeah. And it's really interesting being like a female horror director where, you know, like, I'm making movies about women in peril and I make movies about violence against women. Really hard to say like the point at which it becomes exploitative. I mean, I think kind of, it's sort of a, a personal, it's, it's a personal thing. I see certain movies and I feel strongly they're exploitative and others that aren't, even if they're not like materially that different. I hope when people see this, they won't feel like it's exploitative, but maybe some people will. Right. Well, that like, and, and you know, when that when you have that moment, like, like you're up in your little like nest perch and you're like, I'm being a pervert right now. Like, and that's like, that's 
that's the po- that like that is the point of the shot like that is the absolute point of the shot do you, like is it when you when you have that moment with yourself you're like okay good like that means i'm i'm trying to do what i'm trying to do or is it like all right we're gonna get this it's going exactly how i want but like i'm gonna check in with myself later like what is that moment like where like i'm being i'm a pervert right now like because it's horror it's genre like that's part of the fun of it is is base and 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 reptilian and our lizard brains kind of thing like it's it's my area of specialization like i like horror is my favorite thing and like the intersection of queerness and horror and that's the fun of it but it also like is true that that line between empowerment and exploitation is so gossamer thin and like i wanted to hear from you about like about that kind of tension between those two because when you ride right up to the line that's like oftentimes kind of when it's the most awesome thing (laughs) that's true yeah well i guess like in that particular moment when i was like i feel like a pervert i did feel like good i means i've done this this is having the intended effect but also honestly i feel like a true pervert would not have an awareness of their perversion agreed (laughs) it it would just be like if I were some sort of skeevy male director, like from the 90s or now, <laughs> yeah. like genuinely getting off on it, not feeling like, oh, I feel really uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> we need to take a quick break. But when we return, we'll have lots more with Chloe Okuno. And I will have one quick thing before we go about the immersive movie experience that is Gaspar Noe's other film that is coming out right now called Lux Eterna. So don't go away. Hi, I'm Jesse Thorne, America's Radio Sweetheart. And I'm Jordan Morris, Boy Detective. Our comedy podcast, Jordan Jesse Go, just celebrated its 15th anniversary. It was a couple months ago, but we forgot. Uh, Yeah, completely. Our our silly show is 15 years old. That makes it old enough to get its learner's permit. And almost old enough to get the talk. Wow, I hope you got the talk before then. A lot of things have changed in 15 years. Our show's not one of them. We're never changing and you can't make us. Jordan, Jesse, go the same forever at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm going first. It's me, Jackie Cation. Man, she's always this bossy. Uh, <laughs> I'm Lori Kilmartin. Uh, we're a bunch of stand-up comics, and uh, we've been doing comedy like 60 years total, <laughs> both of us, but we look amazing. And, uh, out. We drop every Monday on Max Fun, and it's called The Jackie and Lori Show, and you could listen to it and learn about comedy and learn about anger management and all the things. And Jackie is married but childless, and I'm unmarried but childful. So together, we make one complete woman. Is that just what that one's going to end? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And we try to make Kyle laugh just like that and say, oh, my God, every episode. It's a good job. Jackie and Lori Show, Mondays, only on Maximum Fun. Welcome back to Feeling Seen. I'm talking with Chloe Okuno, the director of the creepy new thriller, Watcher, about feeling seen by the very creepy, very thrilling Nina Sayers in Darren Aronofsky's Black Swan. So let's get right back to that. Talking about a Black Swan, and we've, we've referenced, 
you know, formative film sort of in this this genre of sort of like women coming undone, women being surveilled. And you were talking, I've read in interviews you talking about how when you got got in got the script, which was originally written by someone else, then you came in and like you made it your own and wanting to imbue it with things that were influenced by your own experience of having felt this sense of being watched, having felt the sense of being sort of followed, looked upon sort of thing. Mm-hmm. What did you feel like you had been missing from a heroine in these kinds of stories? When we have seen it, we have seen it done well many times. Um, I think I think Black Swan is an example of how being di- that being done well. I don't particularly care for that director's point of view on many things, but I, I think Black Swan was well handled. Um, but I wanted to know what sort of details did you feel like were absent in these characters for this trope that we have seen so many times that you wanted to be like, but here's my, here's going to be my distinct way in. Wow. Yeah. Um, I mean, I hope that part of it was like, and it's sort of tough. I mean, maybe this has been done before, but I hoped a lot of it was just sort of the experience that you're seeing of something that feels very mundane and day to day, you know, like her going to the supermarket or her walking down the street, going to a movie theater. Like when I hear from my friends, um, like scary experiences that they've had. It's always in spaces that should be really safe and are really public, like a movie theater. Or like when I was um, a child actually, and I was in a supermarket, there was a man who was following me and it was like one of the scariest things in my life. And I've never forgotten it. Um, (laughs) And it was a a challenge like as a, a horror filmmaker. And, you know, Slut, I had the benefit of doing things that were sort of a little bit more over the top, dragged behind trucks and men dressing up as killer grandmothers, not to spoil it for anyone. (laughs) But this one, it was really um, a lot more subtle. And it was just about the sort of like day-to-day feeling of being, um, of being watched and just being generally a little bit unsafe and uneasy. Um, And that's what I feel a lot of times. And it's a thing that is hard to communicate to other people, especially men who haven't experienced it. So I think it was, it was that. You really nailed the fucking gaslighting (laughs) in this movie. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think I've been there before. Um, And, and it is like, you know, I don't even know sometimes I think men don't even gaslight intentionally. I think it's just sort of, they're so good at it. They don't realize they're doing it, but it's like, they're, (laughs) Maybe, I don't know, it can, is it gaslighting if it's not intentional? I don't know. But it's, it's, it's a matter of perspective. And, um, you know, I always said the sort of like expression for me of the movie and what it's about in a lot of ways is the sort of contrast between Julia's experience in the supermarket being followed, which hopefully is very scary or watching it. And then, you know, going back and seeing the exact same thing. But now you're seeing it through security footage. And for a person who wasn't there, it doesn't look threatening at all. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, what happened? A man was following me and and that's it. But that's enough for her in the moment. I was melting with rage in the theater just now. Good. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah. Um, I mean, I hope I hope, like I find it infuriating. Um, and I've had that experience plenty of times, even uh, funnily enough, making the movie as a female director. Uh, you know, there are people around me who are throwing plenty of doubt my way and mm-hmm. it was something I'm dealing with on a daily basis. And it was very frustrating and kind of ironic considering the subject matter, but I, it just sort of reaffirmed for me what we were doing. 
Nia DaCosta has talked about that exact same thing working on Candyman, like speaking very publicly about it. Like I felt undermined as as a woman and as a black woman by people who were allegedly on my team to get this movie made. That is so fucking infuriating, but it doesn't surprise me at all. Well, I will. I'm I, I need to I need to direct to the end. And so what I'm going to go with as a concluding question is given that we have the foundation of so much as the the feminine as horror as being uh, watched to the point of uh, being minimized and transformed into a dark black swan. Uh, I'm going to go down the other road and I'm going to say, when you had your first blessed reaction about Janine Garofalo in Romeo and Michelle, where, what was the, what was the like, well, it could be Nina or it could be, it could be Janine chain smoking the gif of her gurgling beer onto herself is one that I keep in a file on my phone so it's ready to be deployed. Like, that and, like, the man tearing his own face off from the fly, too, are, like, my two favorite um, a man did something on the internet reaction gifts. So, like, what was it about Heather Mooney (laughs) that you were like, could be me? Um, First of all, I also love that fly, too, face (laughs) belt. It's really, I tell people, it's the second scream for me is what clinches it. It's the, you see the deep draw of breath and then a second scream after the jaw has coming off has come off that really seals it for me as exasperation. Oh, it's so good. Um, but Heather Mooney, I think <laughs> yes. it's just, I don't know, I mean, I've always loved Jane Garofalo. I've yeah. always, like, Heather Mooney, I was like, or I could go with Jane Garofalo and the truth about cats and dogs. Oh, after my own heart. (laughs) Yes. She's just like, she's just, I mean, she's way cooler than I will ever be, but she's (laughs) just so like angry and bitter and hateful. (laughs) And like, she's this like little short brown haired woman who wears black and just feels like, like she hates the world. (laughs) Heather Mooney from Sagebrush High in Tucson. Yeah. It's Romy. Romy White. You're shitting me. No, this is so weird. I didn't know you were living in LA. Well, now that you know, will we be getting together a lot? <laughs> I was like, again, in, in reading and preparing for this, there was uh, a quote that I particularly enjoyed from you where you said that being in this business is, quote, weathering all the stupidity that surrounds you constantly. And... Knowing that a possibility here was Heather Mooney or a Janine Garofalo character, I can hear that spoken in her voice as as you. Man, I must have been feeling particularly honest that day. <laughs> but it genuinely is. <laughs> well, Chloe, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today and to talk about all the things we covered here. I really, I really love your film and I really, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. This was honestly so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm so glad you think so because I was having, I was having a good enough time to where I was like, I hope this is usable and professional because at this point I'm just vibing. <laughs> <laughs> no, for, I hope I was like, I don't, I this was the interviews were like this. You ask really good questions and you ask questions that I haven't gotten because usually I've been getting the same ones over and over again. Thank you for, for doing the work. It was honestly so much fun. It was wonderful to meet you and to get to speak to you. Wow. 
What a wonderful pleasure to get to talk to Chloe Okuno. I, I only recently became illuminated to the existence of Slut, her, her magnificent short film that she made at the American Film Institute, and uh, Watcher, an incredible compliment to that, and an excellent, outstanding, uh, first-class feature film debut. I hope the wave that you are on right now, Chloe, just keeps rising higher and higher. And to you all out there, Watcher hits theaters the day this podcast comes out. So if you, as you should be, are listening to this, have downloaded it the day of its release, that means Watcher will be waiting for you, and it will be on streaming starting June 21st. You have all the information you need. Now act upon it. And now, like I said, as I say, I have one quick thing before I go, and it is uh, just a note about the little oddity that is Gaspar Noe's. He has two new things out right now. One is a feature-length, very powerful, depressing movie uh, about uh, degenerating as a human being in Vortex. Highly recommended if you're down for something emotionally punishing. Extremely well done. Then he has uh, another punishing experience out as well. That is, it is, it's not feature like this. It's, it's like somewhere between a long short and a short movie. It's 52 minutes long. It is called Lux Eterna. And it is... I just, you know, Gaspar likes to put you through it. Like, imagine, imagine if a, a movie, if, if a if a kinetic uh, chaos Noe movie, like the end of Climax, imagine the feeling of like the end of Climax, but for like pretty much 52 minutes. It, like, imagine if the end of Climax was put in a blender with Birdman and you would have... Lux Eterna. We open on just a conversation between two women playing themselves. Uh, Beatrice Dalle, the incredible French actress, uh, n- known perhaps hopefully the world over for her uh, amazing work in genre films, especially uh, as the silent uh, Hall of Fame murderer in the movie Inside. Uh, and she's unstoppable. She's terrifying. And she's a magnificent face. She's a magnificent force. She's in this movie. We open on her in like some parlor, some den. Talking to Charlotte Gainsbourg. They're just, they're just shooting, shooting the breeze together. Swapping stories about making movies, about art, uh, about sex on screen. They're just two, two actresses talking. And what we realize as, as people enter this room to sort of pull them into other parts of this area, this house, which is apparently a set, um, Beatrice appears to be, she could be the director she could be the producer who uh, thinks she's the director, but she is commanding this set, which is functioning on pure chaos. No one knows where they're supposed to be. No one knows what they're supposed to do. Charlotte Gainsbourg is being pushed and pulled back and forth while intermittently dealing also with a family crisis we never see resolved. So that's just a that's just a plot detail hanging. It is it's a it's a steady cams camera uh, screen divided in two. So we are in two character points of view at the same time. So you're constantly in motion on both sides of the screen going in different directions. And you are following your primary characters, which are typically Beatrice and Charlotte, but sometimes switches over into this PA who's been tasked with following Beatrice around and filming her 
lest she do something untowards because the cinematographer who hates her and wants her to be fired is looking to dig up dirt on her so they can bury her and get her off the production. So we could be following that guy around. We could be following Beatrice around. We could be following Carl Glusman around, who is also here as himself and just following Charlotte Gainsbourg, just pleading with her to read his script because he knows it's like the next big thing and he just knows she'd be perfect for it. And then he diverts his attention to Abby Lee, who is also there and playing herself in this movie and wanting her to read his script. Nobody likes each other. Everyone's in conflict. Everyone's moving around all the time. And it all builds toward an absolutely hellacious scene where once everyone's finally on set and in position, it just degrades into like a tech nightmare where you are buried for the last, I don't know, feels like eternity of the movie in strobe lighting. Props to my misery movie friend, uh, the filmmaker Vivian Vaughn, for sitting there and watching the entirety with her eyes wide open the entire I had to sit and watch the end of the movie with my hands in a like in a protective screen over my eyes to mitigate the abuse that was coming from violent strobe lighting as Charlotte Gainsbourg is being like belittled and dehumanized by her screaming, demanding cinematographer and Beatrice Dalle is having a pure meltdown amidst everything else weird wild stuff you guys if you if you're like I can't get enough of Gaspar Noe making me feel upset you can do that in this movie with beautiful people and beautiful colors and flashing lights uh so yeah have have a moment of uh, another moment of freak cinema for yourself and enjoy Carl Glusman who you can see in Watcher and who you can see in this movie um, he plays such an annoying bastard in Lux Eterna, and he plays such a dick in Watcher, and I saw him at a Q&A afterwards where he was just candidly riffing on so many things. I don't know, maybe Carl Glusman has, like, the best sense of humor ever. M- maybe that guy just has his eye on the ball, great perspective about things. Um, I-, I like his choices. Carl Glusman, you're also a Neon Demon, and I love you for that. So... Lux Eterna, switch it up. Do something a little different with your night. And that, what a note to go out on, that's our show. You can follow us on Twitter at FeelingScenePod, or you can send us an email at FeelingScene at MaximumFun.org. If you want to follow me, I'm Crew on Twitter. That's J-O-R-C-R-U. This show is produced by Marissa Flaxbart. Our senior producers are Kevin Ferguson and Laura Swisher. And this is a production of Maximum Fun. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.